Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. We came very close to a catastrophic breakdown of our democratic accountability. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. Right now, we're kind of stuck in this cycle where every summer we're hearing another story about a big fire and a town burning down. It's still extremely difficult to hold government agencies accountable for abuses that take place in the name of national security. This is KCBS In-Depth. For months now, there's been warnings that it could happen, and now it has. The emergence of a new variant of COVID-19 that's potentially even more transmissible than Delta. And in light of this troubling development, many are now asking the question, could a more equitable global vaccine rollout have prevented this? Welcome to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Menconi, and today on the program, we're going to consider the global efforts to get the vaccine out to people in developing nations as warnings mount that this work is not moving fast enough. None of us are safe from the pandemic until everybody is safe, and the way to get people safe is to get the vaccines to everybody. So a bit later on in the program, we're going to be hearing from the head of UNICEF USA for some perspective on what would need to change to get this international vaccine rollout back on track. But first up, we're going to start off taking a look at how we got where we are today. With more on that, welcoming onto the program now, Carmen Pon. She's a global health reporter for Politico who's been tracking the global vaccination effort. Carmen Pon, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. So help us get situated in all this. How much of the world has been vaccinated at this point and how does that stack up to the goals that world leaders set earlier on in the pandemic? Just over, just under half of the world's population has been vaccinated so far, but that's really the average. If you look at regions, then you see great disparities. Africa remains the most unvaccinated region in the world. They have about 7% um, of their 1.3 billion people fully vaccinated. If you compare that to North America, for example, which is at 55%, um, you see, um, we see where the problem lies. And it's also very different between countries. There are countries doing better um, than others. In Africa, for example, South Africa is the most or one of the most vaccinated um, countries on the continent compared to others. I mean, you have Eritrea, which hasn't even started its vaccination program. Yeah. So a lot of disparity there. And as you mentioned, 
some of the countries that have the lowest vaccination rates are in Southern Africa. And that is why global health experts right now are making the case that this really highlights some of the concerns that they've been raising for months now, this notion that the longer the these vaccination rates remain low, the more likely it becomes that uh, a, a variant of some kind would emerge just because that's more opportunities for the virus to spread and mutate and get new traits that are potentially dangerous and Lo and behold, this is exactly what we've seen in Southern Africa with the emergence of the Omicron variant. Although it's uh, my understanding that it's still probably a little bit too early to say for sure that these low vaccination rates are definitely to blame for the Omicron variant. Yes, indeed. One thing we don't know for a fact is where this variant originated. We do know that it was first found in in South Africa and um, in the region around it, but we don't know 100% that it originated there. Um, so that's why it's hard to say with certainty is because of low vaccination rates because it could have in theory originated somewhere else, potentially even in a country with higher vaccination rates. Um, but as you were saying, indeed, um, overall, there's this still very high risk that if you have so many countries that have such low levels of vaccination, the virus will continue to spread, mutations will continue to happen. And, and unfortunately, we might end up with variants that um, make vaccines less effective or even worse, in the worst case scenario, not effective at all. And that's, that's been a great concern for the past year. And, and with Omicron, we see that playing out a little bit. Obviously, we still need to find out how effective the vaccines that we have um, are against this, this latest variant. Yeah, an awful lot more questions to be uh, figured out right there. Let's talk about what the plan has been to get vaccines out to developing countries. Uh, it seems like a lot of this effort is under the banner of COVAX, this uh, international entity. Tell us a little bit about that and what it's been able to accomplish so far. Right. So early on, international organizations set up COVAX. Um, I think it was spring of 2020, where they were really trying to get all the world together to buy vaccines together, exactly to avoid the scenario where each country goes its own way and tries to buy as much as possible. Obviously, rich countries didn't buy into that. They did um, secure their own supplies. Um, and obviously, some people would say for good reasons. Um, and COVAX ended up um, pretty much focusing on lower and middle income countries because some of them have struggled to secure the supply on their own. Um, many African officials actually complained that when they did try to buy vaccines themselves for their own countries or for the continent early this year, there wasn't just there just wasn't enough supply to go around. And COVAX has also experienced that. They didn't manage to get all the doses that they procured on time. Um, then, you know, some of the doses were being produced in, in India who had that massive wave caused by Delta in May and who stopped exports. Um, so then many of the vaccines that are expected to just didn't come in. The exports have actually um, restarted, I think a few weeks ago, um, but it still will take time to ramp up. So there was a big issue of supply. Rich countries were were accused of hoarding these vaccines, of buying more than they needed, um, leaving many poorer countries wanting for vaccines, but not having where to buy because the major suppliers had already contracted them. Um, now, obviously, many rich countries have committed and started donating some of the excess doses they have. The US has gone a bit further than that. They actually bought 1 billion doses of Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines to give to the poorest countries in the world. But as we see, those vaccines are not shipped fast enough 
to really keep up with the virus and to vaccinate as many people as possible, then you obviously, in the countries where these vaccines arrive, it's not like they arrive at the airport and everyone is queuing for a vaccine. As we've seen in the US and in Europe and, and in other countries, both rich and poor, there is a time issue of demand, there is issue of hesitancy. People are not so eager to get it. They are still concerned about potential side effects or about how fast these vaccines were developed. So there's a lot of work to do on the ground too to actually get those vaccines into people's arms. All right. Yeah. So a lot of complexities in terms of the distribution effort within those countries. And I want to get into that in just a second. Uh, real quick, I'm going to reintroduce you, though. This is KCBS In-Depth. We're speaking right now to Carmen Pond. She's the global health reporter for Politico. Once again, she's been tracking the global vaccination effort around the world. And that's what we're talking about on the program today. Uh, before we get to the complexities in those other countries, though, I do want to really zero in on one point, though. Obviously, a lot of folks have raised the concern about rolling out the booster shots in the U.S., the notion being that if we're spending all of our shots getting people boosted with, you know, some amount of public health benefits, uh, we're giving up the uh, perhaps larger public health benefit that we would get from boosting folks for the first time, or not boosting, but, you know, giving them their first shot uh, in, in other countries. At this point, I mean, you kind of mentioned that uh, a lot of shots have made it overseas at this point. At this point, is there really that trade-off? You know, if if more people are getting boosted over here, does that mean that we really are giving up shots for people in other countries or more complicated than that? How how, how big of a trade-off are we looking at right there? It is, it is hard to say because we still don't have, um, you know, clear data or full transparency on how many shots are being produced, mm. which countries are getting them. And also in what order, um, you know, the, the pharmaceutical industry has said that they are producing something like 1.5 billion shots a month. And that by June 2022, they would have a shot for each adult um, in the world. The problem is they're very inequitably distributed, as we were speaking. Um, and it's hard to say how much of a trade off it is right now between boosters in rich countries and um you know, first doses in poor countries, obviously the World Health Organization and other international organizations engage in the global effort have said that, you know, at the end of the day, the supply is the same. So the boosters are coming from a supply that could go to vaccinate poorer countries. Um, the U.S. has defended its booster approach saying that, you know, they they don't see this as a trade-off. They can do both at the same time. And, you know, administration officials always argue that um, for each one shot that they put into an American's arm, they have been sending three shots abroad. So they are trying to, to make this point that they are not, they're not keeping everything for themselves, but they're also, that they have enough supply to do both. Um, obviously, it's, it's just hard to say, you know, logically, if you're tapping into the same one supply, if you're getting more for yourself, then other countries will not have it. But we do see supply ramping up in many countries that struggle with it in the in the early days of the vaccination rollout. So uh, quite a complicated picture, and it sounds like that picture is different depending on what portion of the world that you're looking at. Uh, another complexity, as uh, we alluded to just a moment ago, is the complexity of actually delivering the shots once they are in the country. There's uh, a lot of challenges there. I suppose one of the big ones is just the fact that the the cold infrastructure, you know, many of these shots need to be stored in very uh, cold environments, uh, freezers. Uh, many countries don't actually have that infrastructure. So getting the mRNA vaccines out to throughout the country uh, right there is already a huge challenge. 
Indeed, indeed. And, and you know, um, to their credit, international organizations and also um, some of the rich countries, including the U.S., have um, put money and resources into making sure that that becomes available. Um, it's still a struggle. And in co the countries that end up having it, in many cases, they do have it in their capital cities or in their major cities, but they don't have it in, um, in more remote areas. What some countries have done is roll out mRNA vaccines in the cities where they can store them. Um, and roll out um, vaccines like J&J or AstraZeneca that don't need to be stored at, at those um, very cold temperatures. So there are ways to go around that if you don't have the infrastructure. And um, actually, um, there are also innovations like in Ghana, they have drones delivering vaccines. And the drone company has the fridges to keep Pfizer vaccines at the needed temperatures. And then they just deliver it to clinics maybe 62 miles away that can use it, maybe they can use them within a few hours. So then they don't need to, to store them at those very low temperatures. But obviously it remains, it remains a big problem in many countries um, having where to store those vaccines. And that's why at times many officials argue that you cannot overwhelm them with vaccines. You cannot send millions at a time um, with short notice because then they might not have where to store them and those, those doses might actually go to waste. Yeah, so some innovative ideas being brought to bear on the distribution question. Uh, meantime, when it comes to the supply question, there is one big idea for how to ramp that supply up, uh, but it is a little bit controversial, that being the idea of relaxing the intellectual property protections around the vaccines themselves. Uh, essentially, that would allow manufacturers in other countries to step up their own production, uh, potentially getting the doses made exactly where uh, they're needed most. Uh, a lot of supporters of this idea of course, uh, vac vaccine manufacturers uh, themselves, the current makers, not big fans for uh, understandable reasons. Where does this debate stand at this point? Um, it's been a tough debate. The U.S. did back um, a sort of waiver of intellectual property rights, but just for vaccines in May. Um, but the, the European Union, um, United Kingdom, Switzerland, and other rich countries, many of them um, that are big producers of of medicines and vaccines. They are saying that this is not the way forward, that it's just gonna fragment the efforts and that you know the issue is not having more people produce it, but increasing the supply um, that we have right now and to support pharmaceutical companies and other contractors that are working with them to increase the supply as fast as they can while obviously making sure that all the standards um, are followed. Um, activists are saying that we've seen um, with the HIV fight that unless you do relax these protections, there will not be enough supply because pharmaceutical companies will sell to the highest bidder and not necessarily to the places where it's most needed. Um, so it's, it's hard to say um, as a non-expert on, on production of vaccines, how much of a difference it will make. Um, there are all the global health activists that are saying it's definitely going to make a difference because you just you just decentralize production, you allow companies to produce their own vaccines. Obviously, there will be oversight by the, by the local authorities and by the World Health Organizations, while others are saying, no, 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 we just need the networks that are already in place to scale up and to produce more. Um, it's, it's hard to say whether we'll come to any agreement. Um, it looks like the, the negotiators in Geneva have been going around the same topics for almost a year now. Um, so it's uncertain whether at some point they will find a compromise that will please both sides of the debate. 
Uh, so, another big unanswered question about the future of this global vaccine rollout. Um, uh, we have been hearing about that rollout, once again, from Carmen Pon. She is a global health reporter for Politico. Carmen Pon, thanks so much for filling us in. Thank you so much for having me. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all-star closer kenley jansen we have a question what's the best podcast of all time Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Menconi. Today on the program, as the world confronts a new variant of COVID-19, there's renewed urgency to get COVID shots to more people around the world, and also growing recognition that efforts so far have fallen short. In the second half of the program today, we're going to get some perspective on how those efforts could be stepped up, getting that from Michael Neinheis. He's president and CEO of UNICEF USA. Michael Neinheis, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Thank you for having me and for your interest in the topic. 
Absolutely. So uh, UNICEF, uh, also known as the United Nations Children's Fund, it's a UN development agency. Uh, Your organization itself has been deeply involved in the vaccination distribution effort and curious to get some perspective on what that has looked like, because I imagine it must be a very complicated effort. We're talking about millions of doses going out to hundreds, uh, more than 100 countries all around the world, trying to get it to every corner of the globe. And, you know, depending on where you're going, there's wildly different situations that you need to contend with and uh, make sure that you're meeting the challenges there. So uh, to start off, just some perspective on what kind of work goes into that distribution effort. Yeah, maybe I'll start with uh, just a little bit of background on UNICEF. As you mentioned, it's the United Nations Children's Fund. So our our work around the world is uh, focused on the needs and well-being and rights of children. A big part of that work is vaccinations. So we vaccinate about 45% of the world's children every year uh, for the basic uh, childhood vaccines that are needed for, for kids under five. So we know vaccinations. We have the procurement mechanisms to deliver about 2 billion doses of childhood vaccines every year. We have the supply chains in place. We have the relationships with ministries of health, with health centers, Uh, with the vaccinators who actually put the shots in arms. So we know how to do this, and we've been doing it for decades. UNICEF is celebrating its 75th anniversary this year. So this is part and parcel of what we do. Because of that, uh, after COVID hit, uh, the World Health Organization and a couple of other groups looking at uh, how to respond needed a partner who could deliver COVID vaccines anywhere in the world. And uh, UNICEF, again, we're set up to do that kind of delivery Uh, And so we were brought into that partnership. It's called COVAX. And uh, our goal is to distribute um, uh, COVID vaccines to everybody who needs them and wants them in uh, countries all over the world, including some of the the world's poorest uh, countries and middle-income countries uh, as well. Hmm. And in terms of the sorts of facilities or infrastructure that needs to be stepped up to do that. When we're talking about the mRNA vaccines, of course, uh, there is that uh, cold chain that needs to be maintained to keep them at those very low temperatures. Uh, Other vaccines, I imagine there are probably some complexities in their handling and uh, care as well. What uh, what has been the biggest challenge in uh, making sure that these vaccine doses get out and that they're used in a timely manner? Yeah, you are right that uh, some of this is complex. Um, Cold chain is really important. It's also important for the childhood vaccines that uh, we deliver every day. So we have spent a lot of time over the years building up cold chain capacity uh, in lots of places uh, to be able to do that. It's not a perfect system yet, but but we've really put a concerted effort into it over the last five years or so, and it's made a big difference in in that being ready and available. Still need to continue to work on it to make sure we can get everywhere. Our biggest challenge, frankly, has been supply, the ability to get enough COVID vaccines uh, through the pipeline. As I mentioned, we do about 2 billion doses of childhood vaccines every year. The COVAX partnership set a goal of getting 2 billion doses of COVID vaccines um, uh, around the world uh, to to these low and middle income countries in particular uh, that need our help with that. Uh, We're going to fall well short of that. Uh, Maybe it's going to be closer to a billion or slightly more than that by the end of the year. Um, And that is really not a supply chain issue. It is a supply issue. We just have not been able to get our hands on enough vaccines. Uh, That is ramping up now pretty fast. And so we think we're going to be able to hit that those targets by the middle of next year. 
Um, but we just need our hands on more vaccines. So given where we are, given that we are not hitting our targets currently, and uh, given that it sounds like we need more support for some of the other complex challenges of the vaccine rollout as well, do you have the sense that uh, the events of the past week with you know the emergence of Omicron and everything that we've learned about it since, do you have the sense that that's giving a greater sense of urgency to this effort, that there's now more motivation to address some of these problems that you're talking about? I hope so. Um, this is what we've been saying would happen if we didn't get the vaccines out as fast as we could to everybody. Um, and again, the risks of it happening again are, are real. Uh, we need to end the pandemic, um, slow this spread of the disease, and slow the possibility of more mutations into other variants. And that's going to happen when populations are vaccinated at high levels. And, um, and, and so we, need to, we really need to make that happen. And again, you know, we're, we, have the, we have the supply chains in place. We, we're working with local governments. We, we, we can make this happen. We just need to get our hands on more supply. Now, what about the issue of vaccine hesitancy? Uh, I know that this is a bit of a controversial topic because if you overemphasize vaccine hesitancy, then you're kind of taking the pressure off of wealthier nations to do their part in supplying more vaccines. But it does seem like, you know, just as there is in the U.S., uh, there are in uh, other, other nations as well some people that are reluctant to get this vaccine for one reason or uh, another. How big of a role uh, has that played in the relatively low levels of vaccine? vaccinations, uh, you know, in, in particular, perhaps in uh, South Africa, for example, which does seem to have a relatively robust supply of vaccines at this point. Yeah, it is a problem without question uh, that, that we need to continue to combat. And uh, we're doing that in a variety of interesting and innovative ways. You know, we deal with vac vaccine hesitancy regularly with all of our childhood vaccines. Uh, so we, you know, we know the, the types of approaches that work there. Uh, combating misinformation, uh, uh, providing good information to influencers within communities to share that information, um, and just providing you know just a high level of of, uh, of good data uh, to people. And so we need to continue to do that. But it is a problem, not just in a country like South Africa. I was talking with a colleague in an Eastern European country that has really low vaccination rates, and it's a country where where people just haven't trusted the government for decades and uh, and so they're not really trusting the government on this one either so we have to combat it you know uh, all over the uh, all over the place and and yes it is a problem i would say the bigger problem right now uh, in most of the the countries with very low vaccination rates and and many countries in africa are in that group um, is uh, we haven't really provided enough vaccine yet to get to the people who are hesitant. <laughs> we still have lots of people who want it, uh, that we need to get it to all of the health workers, all people with uh, social service workers, uh, all, all the people who have um, underlying health conditions that really want the vaccine. Um, so we need to continue to, to make sure we get the supply there and deal with hesitancy as, as we go. Speaking once again with Michael Neinheis, president and CEO of UNICEF USA, this is KCBS In-Depth. Right now we're talking about the global effort to get vaccine doses into arms uh, around the world and some of the stumbling blocks that we've seen over the last year and uh, especially highlighted over this past week as we've seen a new variant of COVID-19 emerge in southern Africa. 
So we have been talking, you know, in, in terms of the, the major health consequences for this, largely in terms of the concern that we will see more variants with uh, all that transmission, uh, low vaccination rates, allowing that transmission and uh, allowing room for more mutations. But of course, that's not the only health risk that we should be worrying about. That's kind of the, the, the selfish, self-referential health risk that we're worrying about. But low vaccination rates in other countries also means the people in those other countries are not protected from COVID-19. Uh, and uh, that is uh, something that we should be concerned about, obviously, as well. Um, what has that picture looked like in terms of the vulnerability to uh, folks in countries with low vaccination rates to COVID-19? Uh, what kinds of problems have low vaccination rates been causing? Well, yes. Yeah, so um, certainly uh, the, um, the spread of, of COVID um, in low vaccination um, uh, areas is, is, a, is a real problem. But you know, we also need to be concerned about the other health risks that are there because of the COVID pandemic. So we know because we do uh, you know, so much of the vaccination of children that in many countries, basic childhood vaccine campaigns were delayed uh, sometimes by months uh, at, at the height of the, of the pandemic uh, earlier. And every, every day, every week, every month that a child goes without their measles vaccine, uh, is the risk of higher uh, measles. And we are seeing that in places already. And that's a big concern um, uh, that, that that's a secondary impact of the COVID uh, pandemic. The other secondary impacts are also huge. You know, kids were out of school all over the world. And, um, you, know, we, we, you know, we have early estimates that there may be as many as 11 million young kids uh, who will never go back to school because they, they, they left school and other things happen and they're not going to go back. So the impacts of the pandemic are huge, uh, even beyond just thinking about people getting sick with COVID or not. And I would say, especially for children, and again, we're really focused, although we're doing the COVID vaccination program targeted at adults right now around the world, our, our, you know, our core focus remains the, the well-being and the rights of children. And, um, and they've suffered greatly, even though they're not at the front line of getting COVID. Um, uh, typically, uh, we've seen more of that here in the U.S. lately, but um, but it hasn't been the, the first concern with, with COVID. But all the other impacts of economies that have slowed down, school that has been out, vaccination, and other uh, basic programs for their well-being that were delayed cause all kinds of secondary impacts that probably will never be able to be measured, uh, but some of it will. If we see measles rates really rise up because of, of that, that's a great concern. And... All these things, or at least some of these things, perhaps could be mitigated if those vaccination rates were increased. So just another reason to uh, hope that more doses get out there? Well, sure, of course, right? So the whole idea is to, to be able to restart lives, uh, reclaim school, uh, um, get people's lives back going the way they're supposed to go. And uh, that's going to happen when COVID is not a big concern, when it fades into the background as one more seasonal respiratory disease that we have to deal with. Um, but it's not a raging global pandemic that shuts things down because it's when things get shut down, whether it's, you know, vital uh, humanitarian programs, whether it's school, whether it's businesses and economy, uh, that's when all these secondary impacts that we don't talk enough about really happen. So we have to beat the pandemic so we can reclaim and restart uh, life the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. Uh, it's 
as true abroad as it is at home. Uh, in closing, we only have about a minute left, but uh, if folks are listening and they do want to show their support in some way, what is a way that uh, average residents can be impactful in this effort? I know that uh, recently UNICEF spearheaded a Giving Tuesday initiative that uh, uh, in, in cities around the country, and including in San Francisco, that raised uh, quite a bit of money, uh, not uh, specifically, I don't think, for uh, the vaccine effort, but more generally for uh, the causes that UNICEF supports. Uh, but uh, I guess just a, one example of uh, there are ways for people to show up and uh, show support. Yeah, absolutely. And we had a great event in San Francisco on Tuesday night, uh, as we did in 10 cities across the country, to draw attention to UNICEF's work, including our work on COVID vaccines around the globe. And, and yeah, on, on the night of Giving Tuesday, raised a good, a good bit of money for that. But, you know, uh, UNICEF needs dollars to get shots in arms. Uh, the, the vaccines themselves are being paid for by governments and and, and, and the UN and other multilateral groups, but the, the work that we do to actually get the vaccines there, get it down to the last mile, get the vaccinator to put the shot in the arms, we have to pay for it, UNICEF. And, um, and we need resources to do that. We'd love for people to go to our website, unicefusa.org, read more about it and pitch in and be part of the global solution to ending this pandemic. All right. Uh, something that uh, I think everybody would, would like to be a part of at this point. Uh, speaking one last time to Michael Neinheis, he is the president and CEO of UNICEF USA. Michael Neinheis, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 